Good morning. Turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 7. This week and next week, we're closing up uh, our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, If you came this morning just dead set on hearing an encouraging sermon, or or a sermon that would bring you comfort, you can probably still make another service in town because that's not where we are this morning. I feel like the text that we're looking at this morning, in my own personal opinion, I know the opinion of many others, is the most terrifying and unsettling text of Scripture in all of the Bible. But I've been uncomfortable all week with this passage, so you can endure uh, this sermon as we look and examine our lives in in a very sobering way. So Matthew chapter 7 verses 21 through 23 it says this, not everyone who says to me Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me Lord, Lord did we not prophesy in your name? and cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Let's pray one more time. Dearly Father, God, this is a scary text. And God, no one in this congregation wants to be deceived. They don't want to be self-deceived. They want to know that they, are, they know you and that they're known by you. And I pray, God, that after we do examine ourselves from this text, that we would either be confident that we are known by you or be perfectly clear that we don't know you and that we might uh, act to change that. God, move in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Last week we looked at the danger from without. That's false prophets that are trying to sell us a bill of goods about uh, about the narrow uh, road versus the broad way. And this morning we turn to look at the dangers from within. And that is our own self-deception. J.C. Ryle put it like this, we turn from unsound teachers to unsound hearers. I don't know about you, but I find this text the stuff of nightmares. I mean, this, what this is talking about is the day of judgment. And that is going to be a horrible day for many, many people. And it's bad enough to see people come before God that outright rejected Him. That just simply didn't believe in it, maybe even heard the gospel and rejected it. It's going to be a horrible day to see those people reap what they have sown, but in, in some ways it's going to be a, a bit, of, you can understand that, right? You can at least say, well, they went into this thing with eyes wide open. They cast their bets that there was no God, and now they receive the benefits from that. But even that is horrible. But more horrible than that is is someone who stands before God 
fully and absolutely convinced that He's their Lord. Fully convinced that they've lived a life that demonstrates that they know God and then to suddenly hear from Him, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you. And then to be cast into an eternal hell. There's no way to read this text and not at least be a little unsettled. I don't know what you're made of. I don't know how hard your heart would have to be to read this text and go, huh, I'm good. As unpleasant as it may be, Jesus wants to unsettle us, not to make us miserable, not to paralyze us with fear, but to make sure that we're cautious about our salvation and whether or not we know Him. And the main idea of this text is that we must be cautious concerning our salvation because many will be surprised at the judgment when they are told that Christ never knew them. And what I want us to do is first we'll look at, at what these folks have, the evidences that they have in their life, but that aren't enough. And then, then we'll look at what these folks lack. What are the warning signs? Do, are there some things revealed in this text that kind of show us that things are not right? Uh, there are evidences that things are not right with these people's heart with God. And lastly, we'll look at some safeguards that we should embrace to guard ourselves from being among this many who will say, Lord, Lord, and hear back, I never knew you. So first we want to look at what the self-deceived have. What they do have. They have doctrine concerning Christ. They, they call Him Lord. Now everyone that enters into His kingdom will call Him Lord, but what this text reveals is not everyone who calls Him Lord will enter into His kingdom. Jesus said that there will be many who acknowledge Him as Lord on the day of judgment, they will not enter in. These people are not, and these people are not being vague here. It's not like they have some, you know, well, you know, I believe in a God or anything like that. I mean, this is, this is Jesus saying, they will look upon me and call me Lord. These are people that will see Christ and go, he's mine. He is my Lord. He belongs to me. And Jesus says there will be many who do that that will hear back from Him, you, you're not mine. I've never known you. So from Jesus' warning, we must say that it is very possible to give some type of mental assent to the identity of Jesus without knowing Him in a way that saves us from our sins. Not only is it possible, Jesus says in this text that there will be many who experience this exact thing. Even the demons oftentimes would accurately identify Jesus. We see one example of that is, is Matthew 8, 29, when the demons call Jesus the Son of God. Now they've got the identity right, but they're definitely lost. They're demons. They've turned away from God. They serve Satan. Just because they 
correctly identify him, oh, he's the Son of God, it doesn't mean that their hearts are saved. It's so important for us here in the south of the United States to remember these things because it is rare to find someone who hasn't given some type of mental assent to Jesus. There are missionaries around the world that minister in places of darkness where the gospel has not been preached. And that's a hard mission field where people don't know anything about Jesus. But I would entertain that we also serve in a very, very difficult mission field to be in the place where, where Christ has been preached and many have been deceived into thinking that they know Jesus when they don't. We have been entrusted in our day-to-day lives to preach the gospel in the, in the heart of the territory of self-deception. Surrounded daily by those who think they know Jesus. We need to not only remember and pray for the missionary that is preaching to the heathen, we need to pray and engage ourselves to the preaching to the almost Christians that are among us. They have doctrine concerning Christ. He was their Lord. But that doctrine was not enough to save them. Not only did they have the doctrine and and believe in Christ, they had a zeal for Christ. They actually claimed to have spoken for Him. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name? We're talking about people that not just held doctrine concerning Christ. We are talking about people who spoke in His name. Who prophesied and, 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 and gave out spiritual truth. Even the phrase, Lord, Lord, carries with it zealousness. To say, Lord, is to show respect. To say, Lord, Lord, is to show familiarity and a zeal that, hey, He's mine. He's my Lord. We see in the parable of the sowers, recorded for us in Matthew 13, as Jesus describes the, uh, the, the seeds being sown, and then He describes what it represents. He talks about those who will receive the Word with joy. And so at the very beginning, they will have a zealousness. They will love the teachings of God, but it says eventually they will be strangled to death and shown that, no, they never really had the Lord. It just looked like they had a zeal for Him. Listen to me, doctrine in and of itself cannot save your soul. Can someone who believes doctrine and even teaches doctrine be lost? This seems to be exactly what the Apostle Paul himself had a fear of in his own life. This is what Paul said. 1 Corinthians, he says, but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. Paul, whose writings we base 
so much of our doctrine on who had a zealousness for Christ that would lead him to be imprisoned and beaten and imprisoned and beaten. Paul, who was incredibly doctrinally minded, had a fear that he himself would get the teaching right and in the end be shown to not be of the kingdom of God. That is scary, scary stuff. We also see that they have powerful works for Christ. Not only will these unbelievers call Jesus Lord, not only um, will they be able to point to doctrine and even zeal for doctrine, they will also be able to point to works, and not just works, powerful works. He says in verse 22, And cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. These self-deceived believers can point to works. We did stuff for you, Jesus, and it's not even the simple stuff that we would bring to the table. Hey, I taught Sunday school. Or I went on a week-long mission trip to Nicaragua. Or I changed diapers in the nursery. It's not even that. Like, they brought, we cast out demons. And we did mighty works. And despite their ability to describe works, they did not, that, that they did, in Jesus' name, they remain lost and going to hell. Jesus once sent out his disciples uh, in Luke 10 to do mighty works. He sent them out, and it was kind of their, their moment to kind of do some stuff on their own. So he, he sent them out into the villages, and, and amazing things happened. And they came back just incredibly excited that, that the, the things that they were able to do in Jesus' name. And Jesus responds to them in this way in verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Powerful works are great, but they are no substitute in knowing that your name is secure with Christ. I don't know about you, but these words, this text is unsettling. And there are many, we're told here, who have a very Christian resume that will be rejected from the kingdom of God. And that they will spend eternity in hell. Women, men, women who will be able to say, I believe in Jesus, or He is my Lord, and have done many works, and yet they will be rejected. So are there any indicators that something is not right about these folks? Are there warning signs that maybe these folks should have seen? Are there characteristics that can in any way separate them from the other people that are saying, Lord, Lord, and are going into the kingdom of heaven? I would maintain that there's at least a couple. So let's look at what the self-deceived lacked. What they lacked. First, they lack a personal relationship with Christ. Verse 23, 
And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. First, we're not dealing with people who used to be true Christians and somehow along the way fell away. That's, that's not the way Jesus describes these people. He describes them and says, I never knew you. Yes, they may have had a time and a place in the past where they made some kind of decision and they have what they think happened but it didn't really happen for Jesus says I never knew you second the most important factor in determining your condition before God is your personal relationship with Christ calling him Lord Lord and pointing to works means nothing if you not, cannot first point to the fact that Jesus knows you. Now, Jesus has knowledge of all people, right? I mean, He is the, um, uh, the omniscient God. So there is no one on the earth that has ever been born and lived their life and died in which God did not know everything. Thing about them did not know every step of their life and so it's not saying here that that he didn't, doesn't know people exist know here is something very different we know that God is fond of using the term know in a very intimate way I mean, when when the uh, union of Adam and Eve is described it says an Adam knew Eve Okay, we know what that means, right? A very intimate act. They knew each other. There are countless times in, in uh, the Old Testament where God speaks of knowing the people of Israel. The I never knew you is alluding to that special relationship that exists between the holy God and the people he has redeemed. So the biggest question is not, can I say he's my Lord? Or can I point to good doctrine? Or can I point to good works in my life? The biggest question is, do I belong to him? Does he know me in an intimate way? I thought, uh, I think James Boyce illustrates these verses well with the life of Martin Luther. Luther left his secular occupation and went into a very respected monastery where he learned, where he earned a doctorate of theology and was ordained to the priesthood and he was an excellent teacher. People came all around before, even before Luther became a Christian, people came to hear him teach because he was a theological genius. And in that time, Luther would have said, yeah, I know God. And yet, yet Luther, looking back on his life during that time, would later say, that whole time I didn't know God until my eyes were opened later by the gospel. This is what Boyce says. I think this is what's helpful. At this point in his life, Luther did not know the Lord personally. 
Jesus was God, but not his God. Jesus was Lord, but not his Lord. Jesus was Savior, but not his Savior. Before the peace that he craved, uh, that he craved became his, and before he, he could be used of God as the great Protestant reformer, he had to confront Jesus Christ himself. And to determine whether or not one personally knows Jesus is, is really a very individual thing. I wish I could give you a few diagnostic questions and ask them of yourself and, and leave here absolutely 100% confident that you personally know Jesus, but it's not that easy, at least according from this text. It takes a lot of examining of one's heart and, and going back at times to review and to look at one's life, and we'll talk about that in a moment. What we do know is that we must make sure that we have a personal relationship with Jesus. to know that we know him personally and that he knows us personally another thing that we can see is that they lacked the fruit of obedience they lacked the fruit of obedience there's an indication here that not only did, did Jesus not personally know them they also had some outward indicators that, that all was not well in their heart he calls them, you workers of lawlessness. That's what he calls them. You workers of lawlessness. Without wading too far into the Greek, that is a present participle, meaning this is a reference to continuing action. These people that are rejected from the kingdom not only had an inward problem of not knowing Jesus, they had an outward problem of being in rebellion to him. A pattern of rebellion. Proverbs 30, 12 says this, There are those who are clean in their own eyes, but they're not washed of their filth. Yes, they called Jesus Lord, Lord. Yes, they could point to good works, but also there was continuing rebellion in their lives. While 1 John 1.18 proclaims, that we all have sin. It says this, it says, if we say we have no sin, we, de we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So John tells us, look, we all have sin. But then he also tells us in, in chapter 3, verse 9, that in the true Christian, we will have a spirit of conflict with sin. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, he writes. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. These men and women had bad fruit. The verses we looked at last week in verse 18, a healthy tree cannot bear, fruit, uh, bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. They had bad fruit of lawlessness, of continuing lawlessness. It wasn't just the fact of, Hey, they did some sins. It's the fact that they did sins and just didn't really care about repenting. I wonder, and we don't hear this directly, but I wonder if, you know, they said, hey, we got a bunch of good works too, right? Yeah, we got, we got some bad stuff. We, we, you know, we enjoy some sin on the side, but, man, look at how we cast out demons and look at, 
look at the powerful works we do for Jesus as well. And, and they have this mentality maybe of the scales that hey, I, think we do a little, I think we do a little more good than bad. So, so when we get to heaven and we get to the judgment, we'll be okay. And we see that that is not the case. They ignored the evidence of lawlessness in their life that something was not right in their heart. And they pay the price at the judgment. So now let's look at how to avoid being self-deceived. I think that's maybe the question in all of our hearts as we read these texts, this text, right? How can I make sure that that's not me? How can I make sure that I'm not going to hear those words and be shocked by them? Of, I never knew you. Well, first, I think we all need to embrace self-examination. Okay, it's just that's common sense, right? The the uh, the enemy of self-deception is self-examination. Many times, people tr uh, treat questioning your salvation as some type of sinful behavior, as if it's unbelief. And sure, if we're doubting the effectiveness of Christ's work to cover our sins, that's not good. We should never doubt the sufficiency of Christ's work for us. If we're doubting that God's faithful, if we're doubting that, hey, He said He's going to save me, but I'm not sure He is, well, that's not good. But to take time to examine the fruit in your life to see whether your faith is genuine, is biblical, and it's good. We don't want to live a life paralyzed with fear that we don't really know Jesus, but kicking around the tires of our salvation every once in a while is a biblical practice that the Bible tells us Paul did and, and all these men of God did at times. If the Apostle Paul would examine himself to, uh, to avoid making shipwreck of his faith, then certainly we should not try to escape some self-examination from time to time. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says this, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Salvation is the most precious gift we can, we can possess. Now what if I told you, what if I wrote out a million dollar check? First of all, you'd say, you don't have that much, and I don't. But if I did, and I read out, wrote out a million-dollar check, and I gave it to you, I said, keep that in your pocket, and you have to have it in your pocket for a month, and after a month, you can take it to the bank and cash it. How many of you would put that in your pocket and then just assume that that check's there for a month? I don't know about you, but if someone did that for me, I'd be... I'd be touching that pocket every minute. Make sure that it's there. So why would we take something precious like salvation and never kick it around a little bit just to make sure it's real, make sure it's there? Not, now, don't get me wrong. This illusion falls flat a little bit because we can't lose our salvation like we could lose the check. What I'm saying is... is is kicking our salvation around to make sure 
that it's real. Make sure that it's something we can put our confidence in. We have a whole book of the Bible written for self-examination, and that's 1 John. 1 John tells us, and people break it down into really three main things, themes that we see reoccurring in 1 John to give us confidence in our salvation. It's about examining what you believe about Christ and your affections for Christ. That's one way. One thing you need to examine and make sure that you have. He tells us to examine our obedience uh, to Christ, examine our works and see how we're behaving. Make sure that we're walking in the light, as he says. And he also tells us to examine our love for others, especially our love for for people uh, that follow Christ. So this book is about really tossing those things around and examining our, our own lives. But why all the self-examination? He tells us at the end of the book. He says, chapter 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may live in fear? No. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may be miserable in your uncertainty? No. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may be full of self-doubt? No. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. You may know. Self-examination is not to, to cause you to live a life full of doubt and agonizing that, hey, I don't know Him. No, it's Self-examination is what we do to give us confidence that we do know Him. It brings a confidence and boldness that only comes when we know that we have eternal life. So we embrace self-examination, but we also embrace a humble dependence on the mercy of God. Here's what strikes me about these people that are self-deceived in in thinking that they know Christ. It's their confidence. They point out what they have done for Christ, but they speak of nothing of what Christ has done for them. This is a crucial piece that seems to be missing in their hearts. It seems like those captivated by the mercy of God are those who seem to have the least to worry about in the judgment to come. I can't help but think about Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector recorded for us in Luke 18. Starting in verse 10, it says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers or even like this tax collector i fast twice a week i give tithes of all that i get to me it sounds a lot like these people it says look what i've done i've cast out demons i've done this i've done powerful works it says here but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes up to heaven but beat his breast saying god Be merciful to me, a sinner. 
I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. One confidently brings his list of command, a list of, of works that he has done, or some things that he hasn't done. He brings them and says, look at me, God. That man's going to be incredibly surprised at the judgment. When he hears, I never knew you. But the other man, who is just relying on the mercy of God. God, I got no works to bring you. They're, they're filthy rags. I just come before you asking you to have mercy on me. You know what? That man, he may be surprised at the judgment, and other people may be surprised at the judgment in his life. But it won't be, he won't be surprised by God's wrath. He won't be surprised to hear, depart from me. He will be surprised to hear you're righteous. Come into my kingdom. I've made you righteous. Your mercy, my mercy is upon you. One says, I, I, I. The other says, you, 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 Jesus. It's the cross. It's what you've done. Those who would be shocked by God's mercy now, will not find themselves shocked by God's wrath later. And lastly, em embrace the will of God for your life. He says here, the, the identity of those who will be in, led into the kingdom is the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Just real, real briefly, we know that God's will is for, for mankind to enter into a personal relationship with Christ. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises as some count slowness, but is, is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's will is for mankind to, to turn to Him and repent of their sins. That is His revealed will in His Word. We also know that it is His, it is his will that we be conformed to the image of God, the image of Christ. Romans 8, 28, 8, Romans 8, 29. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. So God's will for our lives is for us first to repent to come to him and trust in his mercy and, in, and and trust in what christ has done not in what we've done but what christ has done and then to grow he desires sanctification from us now the scripture tells us to work out our, our, our salvation with fear and trembling right but it also says realizing that it's him that's working in us to do all that that Christ comes to us and, and, and he, he, he calls us to Himself and then He calls us to growth. To put it another way, 
Jesus summed, down, uh, summed up God's will for us is that we love God with our heart, soul, and mind, that we love our neighbor as, as ourselves. So ask yourself simply, am I doing the will of God, which is first and foremost to repent, to turn to Christ, to repent, to, to know Him, not just know about Him, not just to claim some identity about Him, but to know Him as our Lord. And then, do I have a do I have it in my life, a will, which is God's will, that I grow, that I fight sin that's in my life, that I grow to know God more, that I grow to be more like Jesus? So these are the things that if we embrace, I believe we can find comfort even in these difficult, difficult texts of Scripture. As we move into uh, our time of invitation, um, this morning we, we have the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is one of those regular moments God's given us to examine ourselves. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven. let's talk about the Lord's Supper. It says, whoever there eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself this is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died but if we judged ourselves truly get that if we judged ourselves truly we would not be judged that's where all these guys, these people fell short they didn't judge themselves and so they were judged by God. Verse 32, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. This morning we are to judge ourselves so that we would not one day find ourselves judged by God. But if you judge yourself this morning and you find that you do have personal affections for Christ, if you find that you have a confidence that you've, you've that, 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 that your confidence in your life comes not from what you do, but what Christ has done on the cross for you. If you find yourself in yourself a true desire to be more like Christ, then eat the bread and drink of the cup with boldness. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So during our time of invitation, I want you to, to examine your heart and, and, and prepare yourself for the Lord's Supper. And I want this to be a bit of a, a microcosm of what we should do in life, which is first comes the examination, the hard questions, the do I really know Jesus or am I really living in a way that shows that I know Jesus? And once that examination comes, then the bold, joyful confidence that I drink of this cup and or I eat of this bread and I drink of this cup as one who knows that they have eternal life and who can walk out this door with confidence into a world that does not have confidence. So I'm going to ask our musicians to come. I'm going to ask you to stand. And as I said, to prepare your heart for what's about to happen.
um, in just a few moments. Let's pray. Dearly Father God, as we move into a time of examination, of just looking at our hearts and just making sure that we are known by you. God, give us clarity. God, give us clarity. God, if we, if we are yours, give us confidence and help us to just know beyond the shadow of a doubt and, and to just joyfully walk away from this place knowing that we know you. And God, if there is, is anyone here who is self-deceived, I pray that you would give them the same clarity in their lostness, and their need of you. God, move in this place. Move in our hearts. God, show us. Answer the questions that our hearts have of, are we in this group that is to be rejected? Or are we in the group that says, Lord, Lord, and goes right into the kingdom because of Christ? Move in our hearts. Give us confirmation. Help us not to be fearful unless we need to be fearful. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.